How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan, the Kingslayer. <laughs> Moriarty, Dagan, how are you? I, ever since like, we we thought we agree that that scene was funny, I just haven't been able to stop. I say it all the time. <laughs> that is a really funny scene because you think she would have stopped calling him that by then. That's exactly right. Like, she just, just keeps going. It's like just one in one ear, not the other. He has this like, heartfelt thing, and then he like faints. And immediately she calls him, you know, she thinks she such Amy. <laughs> I feel like it was a mistake that they kept in. But anyway, we're regressing back to season yeah, three. Yeah. But it is funny if you guys don't know what we're talking about. It's one of those things because it's not her character to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? She's very honorable. Right. Very the respectful. <laughs> it's funny to me. Anyway, Dig, um, before we get into our episode today, our retro and nostalgia podcast, how are you doing? What's going on? Well, since we're talking about respect. Oh, this geez. is what I was thinking about because this just this is this will give you this will guys this will paint a picture for you guys about the level of respect that I command in this house, Casa de Moriarty. Okay, this happened just a couple of days ago, and I was just thinking because we were taking Lily to dance. This happened the other day when I was taking her to dance in the morning, and <laughs> I think it must have been Saturday morning or Saturday morning class because she's always very tired. She's still waking up. She's not talkative. It's very low energy. So. I usually just try to make conversation or I try, I bust her chops because she's an easy target and she's going to be extra cranky about it, which is actually kind of dangerous for me to do, but I, I like to live on the edge. So I thought about how, what am I going to say to her? Because she's not going to talk to me the entire 15 minute ride there, right? So then I have a brainstorm of something that I have been thinking about. And I was like, you know what? This would be kind of funny for me to talk about on the podcast too. And I had never confided this in anybody. And I have a friendship with Lil. She's the type of person I could kind of uh, bounce things off of. So she's 15 now, you know. So I said, yeah, I'm going to tell her. So now let me preface this by saying I literally haven't told anybody else this except for Lilia. But this was, it, it's her reaction that I think is so hilarious and kind of not surprising, I guess. So I've been thinking about this. I guess really I've been thinking about this for quite some time, but it's only recently where I really started to wrap my head around, hey, you know, you should actually entertain the thought of trying this out. So I tell her, I say, Lil, haven't told anybody else this. What do you think? Thinking about trying stand-up comedy. Okay. It didn't take a beat. I mean, in two frames, she was like, oh my God, please don't. Now, all of a sudden, she's alive. She's alive. She's, she's all full of energy. You know, this is, this is the catalyst she needed. So, oh my God, please don't. And she's serious. She's not joking around. That is going to be so awkward. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I I immediately start laughing and I, I immediately come back and respond awkward for who? And she's like, 
for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And then she said, that's funny. (laughs) Yeah. Oh no. She's serious. Because she's automatically thinking of herself. I don't know how she drew herself up in this whole thing. She's not going to be in the crowd, right? So she goes, it's going to be, but it's going to be especially awkward for you. But it wasn't a concern thing. It was like, oh my God, dad, please don't embarrass us. Don't embarrass me, the family name. Just don't put that out in the universe type thing. And I come to this because I've been thinking about it recently. Again, I think it comes back to my walks. And just having that time to think and just take yeah, a break from work, take away from the computer screen. And I've been, I, I realized I've been spending a lot of time while I work recently listening to Bill Burr, listening to his Monday morning podcast. I think he's great. I think he's very fun. He's actually very smart. He has a segment of his show that he does where he, uh, he sort of helps viewers out with advice. He has his wife Nia on sometimes. I think it, the dynamic of their relationship is very fun. And I've also kind of delved back into a comedian in cars getting coffee thing with Jerry and his comic du jour, where they just kind of spin and talk about comedy and stand up and writing and the craft and maybe some people that they admire or their mentors or experiences they've had as, as, you know, young comics heckling, all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of made it feel like, yeah, you know what? I love the, I always loved writing. I always had a keen interest in acting, which I never really pursued. And that, that's kind of the craft of, you know, theatrical, getting on stage, a performance, a persona, a style, all that kind of stuff. So I've been really dabbling with the idea. It's nothing that I'm serious about, but I, she was the first one. You guys are the second ones where I kind of bounced that off. And that was the sincere reaction that I got because my daughter, I mean, dad jokes aside and everything like that which no one thinks is funny. She really could think I am the, probably the most unfunny person on the planet. So for her, I think it was shock. I think it was that 15 year old sort of <laughs> fear of like embarrassment, whatever it was. Shock at but all. I, immediately when it happened, I was like, this is what I'm talking about next week because it just, it really is a case in point about my family and, and just the an old- level of appreciation that I don't get. Was an uh, was an old Long Island comic that always said, "I don't get no respect." So <laughs> you're in the great. That is very true. You're in the great tradition. Absolutely. You know, about his wife's always cheating on him, and you know, like all oh, this is just funny shit. But <laughs> no, it, it's funny, man, because it's it's so funny you were you brought that up because I was thinking recently, it kind of dovetails nicely with this, which is. Just this idea of being embarrassed to do something or being embarrassed or uh, embarrassing other people and how little I care anymore about anything. And now it's been a long time. We might have discussed it on the show in the past, but I just don't care anymore. And I haven't for years, but it gets worse and worse. I just have total dad energy. I just don't care. You know, like it was raining and, you know, the water, you know, when it's a torrential raining, the water kind of, you know, disturbs the the terrain with the, the wood chips and everything. And so I'm like literally individually picking up the wood chips off my driveway and putting them <laughs> back in the garden, you know, and like just doing things that like I totally would have been embarrassed of. You know? <laughs> the difference though, is that I don't have children like our dad did, for instance, and our dad used to do his yard work in Daisy Dukes. So that yes, was especially uh, embarrassing. And if you think I'm kidding, I'm not. And don't forget the half shirt. Yeah, that he would wear a half shirt and like Daisy Dukes and have like, a, like a village it was, person. It was insane. I don't know if dad was living out some sort of 
midlife homosexual fantasy or some, some <laughs> and work boots and sometimes a hat. I don't know. Various hats. I'm not going to, I'm not going to exaggerate. This doesn't need hyperbole. Believe me. I wish that we had pictures of this. Colin is not lying. This is no, I'm not. I, I, this is the getup. It, it was almost so natural to me that it was, I didn't even understand why it was funny when I was a little, that. when I was so young. Cause it was like, huh. yeah, dad's wearing cut off jeans that are going straight up. And daddy also used to wear a speedo in the pool. Yes, so, he did. And to the beach. Talk about being unapologetic and giving no shits. No, our dad's jacked in six three, and I would. And probably... he was big back then. Yeah. No one who was good. That's what we always laugh at. Who's going to say anything? But like Daisy Dukes, legit Daisy Dukes with the pockets hanging at the bottom. Like yeah, they yeah. were short. Why well, not talking about jean shorts cut above the knee? I don't know you what. Seeing some ass cheek from the back. Dude, I don't know what he was thinking. Like what was he thinking other than oh, I just saving money? I guess or some some weird shit like some weird thing he had to do. <laughs> yeah, cutting like had like midriff showing. It was very weird. It was very erotic, and I and I feel like it's a little homoerotic. I got to be honest with you. That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> we got to kind of pursue that with Dad and kind of pick his brain. And where were you, Dad? What were you thinking with this ensemble of the Daisies, the half shirt? Because the the Daisy Dukes alone, maybe you're wearing a t shirt. It's a little less egregious. But with your belly hanging out, then the work boots, and some kind of socks. I'm assuming, and then some sort of headgear, maybe a bandana, a headband. It was. Yeah, and you have like his belt on, like his his work belt a lot and stuff like just it was, yes with the yes the <laughs> and the work belt hung lower than the jeans right oh right. absolutely it was, it was a statement and i you know what's funny <laughs> about it is the there are people in our lives that if you're close enough to us you know exactly what we're talking about because like everyone's seen it if like you're pj or you're a friend mike pope or someone you know exactly what we're talking about when i say my dad would be weeding the garden in his daisy dukes so. yeah yeah. Absolutely. And it wasn't like a reserve outfit when he ran out of laundry. That was his yard outfit weekly. Dad, what, what, what's, I know you're listening. Eventually he will listen to this episode. Yeah, I'm going to see him in a couple of days, actually. Maybe I'll remember. Get a little insight that. into this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I need a little insight into that. We need a picture of this. I need a lot of insight into dad. I mean, that, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> with that whole puzzle. you'll see him in a few days yeah i'll see him shortly so you could pick you could sort of peck away at it yeah i'll see what i can do see what you could do all right my friend well let's get into the topic at hand it's game of thrones Excited. season four which first aired in i think 2014 and um this is for a lot of people peak or around peak game of thrones this yep. is good stuff 10 episodes what I like about the season is that a lot happens, but I actually feel like the sh the story slows down quite a bit. And it because I, I just I take notes naturally, as I always say in my in my book, and I don't really skimp like when I have a lot to say, I'm writing notes. And like when a lot of things are happening, I'm trying to jot notes down. But for some reason, this season, I just didn't write down as much as I usually did. In fact, the last episode we did by recording was episode three, Star Wars episode three. And I wrote four pages for that. And I only wrote three pages total for this entire hmm. season. So that's that's interesting to me. But I, in, in organizing everyone's letters on Patreon, I realized there really are like a half dozen beats that need to be touched upon. And that's it. I mean, in quotes, that's it. There, there's not a lot of like textural stuff. Big things happen. Big characters. Some characters die and some characters recombine and meet each other. And for instance, Stannis comes together with Jon Snow at the end. Like, what's that going to be like? And Tywin and Tyrion and all of that at the end. And there's just a lot, Jamie and, and not only Jamie and, and Cersei, but Jamie and Brienne and all the jealousy and all the rest. There's just a lot. God, Bronn with 
Tyrion and Arya with the Hound. Yeah, there's a lot. So I'm going to get into all that. And of course, to remind everyone, this is our retro and nostalgia podcast. We do it each and every week. Patreon.com slash Last Day Media. I won't waste any more of your time, though. I want to get into what Dagan has to say from a top level about the season. I'm curious, Dagan, what, what comes to mind for you after watching this 10 episode run and and where do you want to begin? Yeah, I already professed my sincere deepest love for season three and i have to say after getting through season four again this time for the show kyle it's kind of a toss-up for me between season three and season four i like them for different reasons now season four contains oberon martell which kind of tips the scales a little bit in season four favor unfor you know unfairly maybe a little bit um it's also the only season we get oberon uh prince oberon but Who's going to also, I, by the way, played? he's playing Joel in The Last of Us on HBO, so he'll be back. Oh, you know what? I don't think I even knew that. I was thinking about Pedro Pascal a lot because of The Mandalorian. Right. And um, he's in Narcos, I think, too. So he's a pretty yes. big star, actually. Huge. And he's and this so like, good, dude. And I was reading just a little bit about him, too. It's funny. It, auspicious kind of beginnings, I mean, before this, but he's like really... We were talking about Stannis and how that guy doesn't really know what's going on. Doesn't really, And I always think that's funny when I see him on screen. Like, I just always laugh about that. I always imagine Sir Davos's actor telling him what's going on before <laughs> they get on there. But he's apparently the exact opposite. Like, he apparently, like, rants and raves about doing the show and is, like, super honored to have been part of it. I love that. Which is cool. I love that about him. Like, yeah, he really embraces the nerd culture. And he's kind of become this nerd culture icon through, the, through these parts. I also heard a great thing about him, too, that wherever he was coming off of before he got cast in game of thrones the people from that production i believe it was a feature film called the showrunners at games and were was like you don't understand this guy is the best you guys are so lucky he's wonderful and he really is a, he really is amazing and i love the character i can't wait to go into him but you know it's true what you say too kyle it's so i'm finding it so hard it's game of thrones is really easy to talk about because we're so enthusiastic about it and it's so wonderful and there's so much to say, but I find it probably harder than any other topic that we've talked about maybe in the entirety of our show so far, just because it is so much. I think it's largely due to the sheer amount of characters, even something that's really rich, like, and that we've talked about a little bit, like The Sopranos, which tends to have a lot of characters, or another thing, another episodic series that has a lot of players. This has a lot. I mean, there's so many. It's almost a testament to the show that you can remember all of them and that you can remember who plays them and what they do from season to season. So that's really, I think that really does say a lot about the show and how wonderful it is. And you know what? It's true. I think, you know, one thing that's important to realize with season four, by the time we're halfway through, we're halfway through the eight season run of the show. So we're at the halfway point. And I really think this is pinnacle peak game of thrones i'm not a lot of people would say it goes downhill starting with with season five i i like all the seasons through seven to be honest and we'll of course we'll get to eight eventually but it's nice to still be in the prime of game of thrones and there's a there's going to be a lot to say this season and i always just think a bit with the characters i think you're right though there's something about the pace that seems to slow from season three although there's a lot of exciting and dramatic things that happen i think Tyrion. Characters like Tyrion, main characters like Tyrion, they, they're, they're mostly in one place, which makes it a little more manageable for the discussion and makes the pace feel a little more languid. But I think 
you know, there's just so much to say. It's almost impossible to know where to start and stop. So at the beginning of the show, I'm always wondering, like, oh, I'm always hoping that we're going to do it, do it justice. So uh, hold our feet to the fire, my friends. Indeed. Well, we can start with Oberon. I mean, we, he's a main character of the season, comes and goes. Uh, Dornish Prince. I actually like his introductory scene when he's riding in and Tyrion's there with Pod <laughs> and whatever. They just kind of like go past him or whatever. There's obviously a lot of notable things about him, his his complete sexuality, his bisexuality, his open marriage, and all of the rest, obviously, his traumatic death at the end. <sighs> What's cool here is, first of all, there's the constant foreshadowing of his conflict with the mountain. I, I don't I wish I remembered what it was like to learn about that he was going to become the champion, because you're kind of wondering and you're kind of assuming it's going to be Jamie. Then then after Jamie admits that he couldn't fight the mountain. You, at least with my opinion at the time, as I recall, was thinking that Tywin was clearly going to live because I knew he was still around at the time, like in the late seasons, but that he was going to get away somehow. And then you realize that this other guy steps in, which is pretty cool. But there's so much backstory because I don't really feel like we see or learn about what really who he really is in the show. I'm sure or I would imagine that in the books, it's much more clear, but you kind of just get a little bit of a texture from him. And and they kind of set it up. I think in the season before when they send Marcella over there to marry off to one of their people in Dorne. But the way that Oberyn talks about Dorne, it makes it seem like it's a much more progressive and normal society. Although there's that awesome, there's that awesome Cersei quote where she's like everyone, everywhere they hurt little girls or something like that when he was trying Love to like that protect, protect them. So and good. so there is a lot to say about him. I'm curious what strikes you about him before we get into his, the whole culmination, of course, with his the fight and his death and being uh, Tywin's or Tyrion's champion, what did you make about Prince Oberyn? What's so intriguing to, about him to you? Yeah, he feels so exotic for the show. I think his introduction is wonderful with Tyrion and Bronn and their sort of um, entourage waiting for their the host from uh, from Dorne to come in and visit, and they're coming for Joffrey's wedding, and the the king can't come, so. Oberyn comes in his stead, who is a second son. He's a prince. And I think I love the fact that they build him up as this legendary warrior, but he is also a prince. Again, he's a second son. And I love, that seems so fitting if you think about it for a second born noble, you're not going to rule. So I love the fact of like, I'm going to pursue this life of being a warrior, but you still have that nobility. It's super, it's super cool. And I love the way they build him up before he's even on screen. You know, Tyrion's like, oh shit, he's here already. We have to find him because he's going to kill somebody type of thing because he has a <laughs> notorious hatred for the Lannisters. Right. That was just beautiful character building before we even see Pedro Pascal on screen. So fun. And then, yeah, he's just this really interesting character. I heard that they kind of dressed him like 1970s era, like Jimmy Page. And we already know Dorne to be this very, I don't know, I always think about it like a very Spain-like Greece-like, maybe kind of interwoven with yeah, like Mediterranean, Eastern, yeah, Mediterranean, really, really exotic look, Southern. Right now, yeah. like you were saying, fashion forward. They always say the good wine comes from there. And this house, the Martells, they're kind of like this renowned house of these warriors, and they're you know these these red vipers. And he seems like he's handsome. He's obviously very sexual. He's very sexually fluid with men and women, and we see all that. 
And I think we like him automatically because we know the Lannisters to be pr- a pretty evil lot and he hates them. So automatically he has appeal because we're like on his side and he's got a serious bone to pick and a legitimate bone to pick because the mountain killed his sister and his niece and nephew and he wants revenge. And that's why he's there. And it's a convenient thing to be there for the wedding. But you learn more about him as he has exchanges with various characters, as he has conversations with Tyrion and Bronn, with Varys, with Cersei, with with Tywin later on. And you get every time he has a conversation, you get to know a little more about him. And he's this stranger in a strange land, but he's also fearless. And that just makes him so interesting. I mean, he's taking out knights, Lannister knights, two at a time in the brothel. And he has a dagger and they have these huge broadswords. You're like who he just reminds me of a scorpion, you know, mm. and his death, not to get not to put the, the card ahead of the horse, but his death gutted me. I mean, that was a shocking a moment. That was the red, the red wedding moment of season four for me, because you have this forward momentum of this character that wants revenge and it's righteous. And he's pretty close to killing this guy. And he just flew too close to the sun. You know, he fought with anger. If he just calmed the hell down, he would have gotten his he would have gotten his victory. And it's really, it says so much. It's a really stark reminder of what this show does, which it doesn't banter, it doesn't banter about trying to be too precious or too emotional. Or too, you know, it doesn't really get sentimental. Things are gonna Things are going to happen, and there's a realism to that that's really jarring. And Oberyn's death was just, I mean, <laughs> no pun intended, I was crushed when he died. Not only how, not only when he died, but how he died. He dies horribly. Like, it's one oh my of God, most horrible yeah. deaths it's in the entire, entire show. What I like about well, let's 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 talk about it. Quinn Zelanko wrote in and said, straight up, is Oberyn's death the most gruesome death in TV or movie Man. history? It sticks with me to this day. Love these season by season breakdowns. Thank you. So Thank you. the thing about this, and I remarked to Micah what, what I loved about it was. First of all, I knew it was happening because I've seen this before. Now, now we're getting into the territory. I've seen everything once. So I knew this was going to happen. And I remember being like, whole. It, it is one of those red weddings sit in front of like sit at the edge of your seat being like, holy shit, when that happens. And what I was saying to her that I liked about it is that there might be like five, six seconds in real time between him celebrating and him being dead yes and yeah it happens like that and i love that shit and the the celebrating and all that and the different fighting styles were was cool were cool too but you realize the mountain's not necessarily very talented now they they really the mountain is is, changes a lot and out and and i love how they bring in that the fallen (laughs) maester and all that's fucking dope they don't really execute it very well maybe but it's dope that they have this thing where this like this this academic who's totally outside doesn't have his chains and all this revives him and they get to that but later especially next season but i do like how there it just changes like that like he thinks he won and he he he's screaming in death but it's all within seconds and it's over and you're right he could have just ended it so many different times but he was insistent on this making him say these things and what's fucked up is that the mountain then says like yes like he's killing him. like yes i raped and oh. killed your, your sister and killed her kids and all this it's like damn dude like you just ate it oh, like like in, uh, in all for all time oh. you, that was a that was a fuck up and it's 
that that thing where the mountain just sweeps his legs out was like with his arms when you know it shifted it turned on a dime that was it that moment that victory that sure-footed victory just turns to the most horrific he gets all his teeth knocked out and then that shot is horrible yeah oh dude and then you know like you you said he gets swept gets his teeth knocked out gets his head crushed like a pumpkin and his paramour is watching the entire thing she just screams in heart can you i mean it's the most heart-wrenching thing because what you said, you have that momentum in one direction and your blood is boiling with Oberon's. You're like, oh, he's going to, get, we got this. And then just like Colin said, in seconds, you're completely, utterly defeated. And we're defeated because we were right there with them. Yeah, it, like, it's ah. so, and you know, it's really important to say this will set off a chain of events for future seasons between the Lannisters and the Martells, between Dorne and King's Landing. So this, this is a very important thing to have happen it's a shame to lose Oberon because i think he is so different he really stands out like all the good characters you know he provides something completely original compared to everybody else but you know it was nice while we knew him <laughs> yeah totally yeah him stabbing the guy like you said through the hand and all of this is a really hot start and a really tragic and violent end just absolutely crushes him <sighs> i didn't remember the whole that there's poison on his spear kind of thing which which micah had pointed out i actually didn't and now that that becomes clear when the mountain is being worked on by the fallen maester or whatever but the the reality is that i just didn't remember that whole thing at all and one of the cool scenes i I like how you kind of can read into the rules right like there's this rule of trial by combat and uh i like how he breaks his spear and then the guy throws him another spear and now everyone's like that's totally like no one said anything or thought booed or Right or anything like there's some there's some sort of rule set which is interesting we don't we're not really privy to, which is fun and fascinating and he played he played the mountain exactly the way he should which is to continue to move and stick yeah. and move and and he just couldn't finish the job very sad for that character to come but shine so bright like we said the, a lot of the characters that don't stick around for very long as strong as the main characters are for the the guys that don't stick around very long incredibly powerful performances from a lot of them and so this good. is this is no exa- uh, no exception to that let's work backwards though and i want to talk about the trial itself mike poe wrote in and said good day brothers moriarty there are so many exceptional scenes in the season between the fight with the mountain joffrey's death and the battle of the wall however the one that sticks with the mo- with me the most is Tyrion's trial where Tyrion mm. delivers the most cathartic speech i had ever seen i don't think any writer could do better than watching you vicious bastards die gives me more relief than a thousand lying whores if Tyrion hadn't been set free do you think Tywin would have actually allowed the execution to happen? Or do you think he would have been true to his word at the end and covertly saved him? The trial is so interesting because, and I'm curious, what do you make of this in just this incredible drive to just kill Tyrion? And it makes you wonder like, why didn't, why don't you just do it? Uh, not to be so dark, but these people are so evil and corrupt. It's like, just kill him. You could have killed him so many times when he was a kid, when he was an infant, obviously he talks about how he, was going to drop him in the water and let him drown and didn't and all of this crazy shit. And you start to feel worse and worse for, for Tyrion as you just learn about all of the, all of the abuse he's been put through. In fact, it's Oberyn telling him the story about how he met him when he was very young and that there were all of these rumors about how ghastly and demonish he was. But when he saw him, it was just a baby with a big head and that, you know, Cersei like squeezed his dick and weird shit like that. Like you could just, there's, I like that the show is demented, but doesn't shy away from this really harsh 
sexual undertone and all this weird thing, all these weird things with them. But I'm curious because I know you're very passionate about Tyrion as a character. What did you think about the, his trial and his arrest and the way he's treated, his relationship, of course, with Jamie's conversations with Tywin? There's a lot of different things that we can touch on here, but I'm curious what what strikes you. Yeah, I mean, really, again, shout out to Peter Dinklage. I know he won a couple of Emmys for the show, at least, right? I'm not sure I about this so. season specifically. But, uh, God, so good. The trial, I mean, really, when you start the season off, you quickly know before Joffrey, you know, Joffrey dies in, in episode two. So you have a bunch of episodes, very early in the season. And I had to kind of channel back of watching it for the first time. And there's a little bit of, of course, like curiosity, because you really don't know who poisoned Joffrey right away. And then I realized there are a lot more clues than I initially even remembered. But you're even thinking, holy shit, the Tyrion or, you know, slash Sansa have some hand in this. Now, you could see with the early episodes, Joffrey and Tyrion are coming to extreme loggerheads. I mean, Joffrey's going, going to make it impossible, literally impossible for the Tyrion to just carry on in King's Landing. That is a relationship that is just not going to work, and Joffrey's going to be extra sure of that. And... His death, of course, the majority of this season kind of springs Tyrion into being imprisoned and then, of course, being on trial. And, you know, you're really, you know, it was early, pretty early on, you know, or at least you could intimate that it wasn't him and that he's the victim here. And I love what you said, Kyle, about King's Landing and sort of the pageantry. Everything with the Lannisters is pageantry and a shroud and a charade. And Tyrion's monologue, when he just, even after Jamie cuts a deal for him and was like, just cool down. You're going to be, you're going to survive. I made a deal with dad. You're going to be sent to the wall. You could live out your life at the Night's Watch. Tyrion just can't let it go. And in that monologue, it's cathartic for us. Because he's finally breaking down those walls and that pageantry and just saying, look, you people are fucking vile. I saved all of you. I'm glad Joffrey's dead. He's a vicious bastard and all of this. It's unbelievable. And the acting and just saying to them, like, I'm not, again, that whole thing of I'm not the monster that you think I am, but I might as well be because of the way I'm treated. And you're really just wondering how it's going to go for Tyrion because not only that, but we find out that Jamie is not going to be able to defend him. The training with Bronn's not going well. Can't fight with his left hand, that which is a big arc for Jamie in this season. And Bronn says, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm your friend. You, I love you, but I'm not going to risk my life for you. I have all of these things now. I'm a lord. I have a castle. I'm about to be married. I have these riches, which is really heartbreaking. So you're really, it's like, so again, that moment, that rah-rah moment of like Oberon's going to fight for Tyrion and he's going to get his revenge and he's going to save Tyrion's reputation and he's going to hope you know help Tyrion survive this and all this stuff but you're right it's this vile thing of just wanting to find excuses to kill poor Tyrion and obviously we find out soon enough that it was some sort of Tyrell slash Littlefinger plot to kill to kill Joff and Tyrion had nothing to do with it. And he re he literally spends the season in that cell until the very end, which is wow. As far as Bronn is concerned, it's it's interesting. I like that scene with Bronn because 
at some point you're kind of like, well, what? It's kind of unrealistic to expect him to do this. Why would he do this? You've, he's done a lot. And oh my god, you can't, you yeah. can't really get mad at him. Like he, when they were in, um, what was it? The Eerie. And, yeah. And he was he fought. He didn't know him, and he won. I mean, there's a reason Tyrion's alive. Like I don't want. He shouldn't be expected to do that again. Sure. And so it's hard to get. It's interesting to see him in his nice outfit and all of this and talking about this, that, and the other thing. But I feel what I felt that in the moment. It's like, well, what is, this guy doesn't really owe, owe you anything. In fact, he tried to train your brother to fight. And I love, by the way, sure. that seaside little get up they got there, that Mediterranean looking, I don't know, facade that they they train at. It's so cool. I don't know if they made that for the show or that's some ancient. No, that's supposedly some thing. rich. I don't know where they filmed that car, but I heard that was some rich, like billionaire's backyard. Oh, and cool. they, they filmed it on his patio. They just doctored up his patio with like fake rocks and stuff on the seaside and they filmed it there. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, it's neat. Yeah, it's a very cool thing. And, you know, they need the privacy. They don't want to out. Out Jamie as being maybe incompetent. <laughs> One of the things that struck me as far as the um the trial is concerned, too, is just the, the deception of Shay, which I didn't remember. I didn't remember that happening at all and how dark it is that he kill, ends up killing her. I mean. It really goes to show you because you think Shay and I, I don't know. I don't know if the book goes into it more, but you kind of look at Shay as this tragic figure. But. Is she? I mean, we don't really know how, the, the the depths of her love for Tyrion in hindsight didn't seem much deeper than, I don't know, puppy love and money and and convenience. And he he finds her in bed saying the same things to him that she used to say to him when he he was sleeping with him so i just i found that really hard to witness i i don't know if the book goes into more of like was she captured and compelled or was she i don't know i i I don't even know what the the vibe is that i get from that what do you think yeah that's a really interesting point and it is there's so much fodder in watching this to read the books i've been thinking about it a lot in fact i was thinking about last night so i just push the you know like pull the trigger and buy these things already i really do want to read them because i want more and you know i want more texture i want more background and depth but, you know, the way I saw it was that Shay probably really did love Tyrion and she's making him pay for his slight. You know, he wants to build early on before the murder of Joff, before the trial. He's really just legit trying to build a normal life in King's Landing. And he wants to do it feels like he wants to do right by his new wife. He wants to do right by Sansa. And. He also, in the same breath, knows that Shay's in danger for being a prostitute and for just straight up being associated with him. So he need, he knows he needs to send Shay away, not only for him, but for her. So I think he does love Shay too, but I think it was that thing of like, if you love them, let them go type of deal. But Shay doesn't take the slight well. And I think it's her, I think the way she appears in the trial and what she says is revenge. I think it's really revenge on Tyrion and it, it you it really makes you feel for him at that moment because her her what she says is compelling and you know they're going to listen to anything that that's said that's anti Tyrion and you know Tyrion even says in that moment like Shay don't you know like she's obviously he knows she's sort of fabricating the entire thing, the plot with him and Sansa, that they plan this thing, they plan Joffrey's murder, all of this. And it's another, it's kind of another nail in the coffin for Tyrion, maybe the biggest nail 
when that happens, it's shocking. And then, of course, leading up to sort of has that moment at the end where Jamie and Varys put the wheels in motion to set him free and that he's going to be whisked out of King's Landing and away from danger. And he can't. He takes that crossbow off the wall and he's going for Tyrion. And he's very emotional in that moment. He, again, feels like it's like his monologue. He can't let it go. It's been years of abuse and torture. Yeah, who can blame him? And what he finds is 10 times worse than what he thought he was going to find in Tywin's bedroom. And it's so emotional. Like, even while he's strangling her and apologizing at the same time, it's like, it's weird. There's very few times I've witnessed a character murder another character where you're really feeling for the murderer, you know, but you are because he's kind of thrust into this situation. And then that whole exchange with Tywin at the end where Tywin is still sitting on that chamber pot with a crossbow pointed right at his forehead and he's still negotiating. He's still Tywin in that moment. And he's so, you know, he's got that silver tongue. You know, he's like, did you think I was really going to do this? Of course I wasn't. Come on, back to my, ch-. you know, it's like, wow. You almost even think Tyrion might buy it for a second. Right. You know? Yeah, you definitely, I definitely didn't expect him to to kill him. And it's such a great cliffhanger. In fact, Joe B wrote in and said, hey, Moriarty bros, to this day, Yo. season four is my favorite of the entire show. Mm. Everything from Joffrey meeting his end to the mountain squishing over his head like a grape. <laughs> Though I think the final 15 minutes of episode 10 are some of the strongest of maybe the entire series. Tyrion finally destroying his ties to being a Lannister sets him off on an entirely different arc for the remainder of the series and causes a real power shift with Tywin out of the picture. You both find his acting in the scene to be as top notch as I do. The you're no son of mine and I am your son. I've always been your son line still gives me chills these many years later. Thank you for writing in Joe. You're no son. You're no, no son. <laughs> the ticking in the beginning like the top. <laughs> you know, I like, don't even think of that song. That song is so good. I fucking love that song. <laughs> you told me. I, wrong song. Um, okay. Oh, all right. Dig. I'm curious from this particular question from Joe. Mm. He asked about the acting. And you had brought up Tywin and his kind of going back, like, come back to my chamber. Let's figure this out. What I couldn't help but notice what or not notice, but kind of feel and wonder was like if there was just there must have been like rigid fear underneath that. Like, in other words, did he really. I wonder what he was going on in his head as the character. Was he scared? I mean, it's obviously like someone's pointing a crossbow bolt at your fucking chest when you're taking a dump in the middle of the night. That's scary, but he is manipulative and he knows his son. And that's what I think was interesting was. I wonder if he was really scared or if if the so-called bending of expectations here this usurpation of the of those expectations serve the story because we don't expect Tyrion to kill Tywin what do you make of that do you think he was truly scared in that moment or do you think he was going to get out of that I really think Tywin thought that he could get out of it you know I think he's used to negotiating he's he's extremely intelligent he's used to getting his way I think only after he gets that first crossbow bolt shot in him that he realizes it's over because he cha- he changes his tune and starts abusing Tyrion again after that oddly enough instead of clinging to a uh, philosophy of please like please have mercy he goes kind of in the other direction and kind of admonishes Tyrion again until Tyrion fires that second shot into him another thing about Tywin Kyle that I realized in this season I mean talk about a boss right he sits on the Iron Throne, especially during the trial, like he owns that thing. He's not a king. 
he sits on the Iron Throne like he's expected to be there. And then I, I realized that at some point in watching this again for the third time, season four, and being like, wow, he sits on the Iron Throne like that's his place. And he really is the king, right? Every, everybody else, Joffrey, Tommen later on, whoever, oh, certainly. was a figurehead. Once Robert died, it really was Tywin. And um, he certainly acts like it. So it was a really satisfying death for me because not only did he die in, you know, in really questionable circumstances on the chamber pot and all that kind of thing. And he's such an evil bastard, Tywin. But to die at the hands of Tyrion was one of those moments, unlike the Oberyn thing, where it's like, wow, you're something that's a, a result that's satisfying. Yeah, very rare. Very rare. Very rare in, in this story. show. Yeah. Absolutely. Like giving you anything that you want to happen. Like even, we'll talk about the Hound, but even the Hound dying, it's like, oh, you don't, God, like why, you know, like what, this is this is or you know at the end anyway yeah being left for dead right i should say that we had brought up uh sansa and her relationship to all of this i want to get into a little bit of that but to do that we need to talk about joffrey's death and kaz and risk wrote in and said hey moriarty bros i just want to say that joffrey's death was throughout the entire series probably the most shocking death in my opinion Usually that big moment is reserved for a finale or penultimate episode, but to happen during the second episode and at his wedding was such a twist. Told me this season is going to be big with such a moment kicking everything off. It's funny because I was saying last week or last episode we did about this, that there was a moment and I didn't want to spoil it for anyone that was going along with us that I thought happened in season three. And this was it where for some reason I thought that happened in season three, but it happens in season four. It is a huge surprise. And I think what makes it so this so satisfying as well is and this is maybe the second satisfying thing that happens this season is just how much of a peak dickhead he's being at the at the festivities. My God. To the point where it's it's like the oh, it's like inevitable. It just seems like it's like how how can a how can a person be so evil and so bad? <laughs> he even names his sword the Valyrian steel sword, Widow Widow's Whale, which is a great name, but such an evil and so, so name. <laughs> This is an, another example, very similar to Ned Stark's death in season one and, and others as well, where it's like no one is safe in this story and anything can happen at any time. And that's the one bummer about watching it again, is that all of that is removed because you even though you don't remember any of the texture and at least I don't, I don't remember so many things that happen. It's like, you know, the big things that are eventually going to happen. And I certainly know that when I was watching this through, I did not know um, that that happened. So what did you think about that, the day, the party and the death and the reaction to it and all the rest? So shocking. Because by now, into season four, you know enough about King of Thrones and the way it goes and sort of the beats and the rhythms that you don't even dare to hope that Joffrey's going to be killed, right? You don't even, you're like, that's not going to happen. They're not going to do that. Why would they reward us with something like that? It's just not the way. The bad guys don't tend to die in this show, at least right away. They definitely leave you on tinterhooks. And so his his death, especially so early in the season, was really masterful done. And, you know, shout out to Jack Leeson, too, because we talk about, of course, Peter Dinklage. We talk about Nikolai Coster-Waldo. We talk about all the amazing players in this. But Jack Leeson is so good. He's yeah, he so is. good at being a bastard. He's so hateable. And you're right. He is the very definition of relentless at that wedding. At that reception, the way he's torturing Tyrion, he does not let up for one second. It's only Marjorie 
that actually adds a little bit of relief and tries to call him away and tries to cool things down. With the exception of that character trying to at least do that, you're like, how is this going to end up? He he does not let Tyrion, he doesn't let up on Tyrion for one second. And that leads up right to Tyrion's death. And then the other thing we were talking about, you were saying with Sansa, when you know we find out Joffrey sort of orchestrated this pageant, this show with the little people, they were right. acting out the Battle of the Five Kings. It's like, how much more torture? can one person possibly absorb? You know what I mean? Like the way he's mistreating this poor girl and the public embarrassment aspect of it with a wedding reception with hundreds of people and the way everybody's just laughing and at, at best not saying anything or just quiet. The, the, the King's Landing is just full of vile people, right? And this is another aspect of it where it just plays up that angle that Joffrey was just gonna, he is just the most out and out evil son of a bitch right until his until his death and then you're automatically thinking they do something very clever with the reception because you got Oberon there you know he he talks about with Tywin about studying poisons at the citadel and he's you know in Essos and that you have him you have other people that don't like Joff there you have of course his 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 long standing view with Tyrion so you're really wondering that you know the the uh, Tyrells are a little you know Elena Tyrell's got some tricks up her sleeve so you're like really what Littlefinger Varys so you're like what you know there's really a, a really kind of a, a a whodunit at the center of it at least at first where you're like wow this could go in a million different directions including at first was it Tyrion and Sansa you know Serdantos the drunk whisks Sansa away to the boat and then you realize it's kind of a plot. With Littlefinger, and then later on, Olena sort of confesses to Marjorie in not so many words that, you know, it wasn't, I know for a fact that it wasn't Tyrion, which is amazing because I remember, not to spoil future seasons, but I remember Olena's confession, confession later on in a future season. I believe it's season seven. It's a wonderful moment between her and another character, which I won't spoil. But she does tip her hand in this season, if mm -hmm. you're paying attention. She basically says she did it. Yeah, she's like, and would, I don't do remember. You think I would have let you marry. That right. Boy or something. Yeah, exactly. Something. So, so it's really interesting the way it plays out with the multitude of, of characters and who done it and who it could have been. And also the retribution. I mean, Cersei screaming at that wedding reception after her son dies in her arms is some of the most chilling, you know, that take him, take. It's yeah. like, whoa, holy shit. You know, like you really feel that emotion, the anger, the animosity, everything, all that poison at the center of the Lannisters and everything's going on in that family dynamic, man, it just all kind of, it's all brought to bear in this season. And it really does make for a wonderful viewing experience. Maybe the most emotional of all the seasons, I would say yeah. season four yes. because of that. Certainly, at least so far, I, I can't speak to the others, but I think you're probably right. There's two things that I, I wanted to touch on with, in regards to jo Joffrey's death. The first is just, and you had said Sir Dantos. I love the thick multi-layered irony behind how joffrey dies because it's that he tortured the fuck out of this random dude at another party he was gonna kill him sansa comes in and saves him and then it ends up coming back and biting him in the ass now sansa's Great. kind of responsible for that but it's just i like that full story quiet revenge kind of situation who knows how he was involved they don't really get into it so i enjoy that and uh the other thing i enjoy about about it is just 
and I guess this is, I don't want to say I enjoy about it. It's actually something I question about it, which is I don't understand. And maybe this is a little bit of the clumsiness with the story, or maybe it's just clumsiness with the TV version as opposed to the books, which we haven't read. But I just don't understand how anyone could abide someone this evil in power. It just seems comically evil. For example, Adolf Hitler, right? Or Joseph Stalin, some of the worst mass murderers, mass murdering leaders in the world. I don't think that when they were like when Hitler would go speak to his parliament, his like rump parliament or whatever, that he would like take someone on stage and like chop a Jew's head off, you know, in front of everyone and be like, look at this, you know, like it's just it seems, you you know what I mean? It's like it's it's the evil was there. We all knew it's there. They know it's there, but it wasn't a performative evil that I think would have set people off. And that's, I think, part of keeping power. And so I don't understand the political reality that allows a tyrant like this to rule for so long, especially in a situation where kings are dying pretty rapidly. I mean, you have two kings ago is killed. Then the second king is kind of drunk and dies in a boar hunt. And now this king's dead. And they're talking about, you know, the, the, all the, the Game of Thrones. I mean, everyone's been fighting over this thing forever. And when Tommen becomes king, it's noted that, like, he might be the first truly good king like that they've had in a really long time. So what do you think about that? Do you think that that's like a, a plot hole? Because to me, it's it's fun because it's so comical and it's villainous and villainousness. But at the same time, it just doesn't jive with the deep realism that the rest of the show portrays in which there's a very complicated web of palace intrigue and political balance and money's paid and who's with who. And then you just have this crazy person at the top. It just doesn't really <laughs> mean, I don't know. It just doesn't. You would think someone would be like, this guy's done, you know, and I don't Absolutely. know. If it, I don't know if it's only because he's a Lannister, which I think it might be that he's untouchable because the money flows through that family, not through the individual. So it would re- have required one of the Lannisters themselves to have killed him. But I don't know. I, I To me, I just feel like it's almost unbelievable. Like, was there ever a tyrant that, mm. I mean, I'm sure there was, but it just, does this make sense to you? I'm just kind of rambling. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. I think I was, in fact, I think I listened to a podcast talking about this very thing and they were comparing Joffrey to like Richard the Longshanks or something. Real, oh, real kings yeah. that were supposedly vile people, tyrants. And that had, some of them had long, long rules. I know what you're saying though. It doesn't seem like somebody with that kind of personality and that sort of just out of control evil, that that model would be tenable. Especially because the Lannisters are one of the most important, most powerful, most wealthy kingdoms. They sort of rule Westeros. So, the person being at the center of that. But I think, again, I think you kind of said it already, Kyle. I think the person at the center of it really is Tywin. And the entire goal is for the Lannisters to rule and the personalities are secondary. As long as the Lannisters are sitting on the Iron Throne, it doesn't really matter what Joffrey's doing because Tywin is there to check him. And I think a good reminder of that is when Joff does die and Tom in the good sort of inherits the throne, Tom in the maybe naive. I don't know about Tom in the good, but he is refreshingly good compared to his, uh, his, uh, the others. But Tywin sort of reminds him that as he's coaching him, that you basically, he basically says in not so many words, you're going to listen to me. It's about wisdom 
And it's about listening to your advisors. I'm your advisor and you're going to listen to me. And that is really the sort of infrastructure that the Lannisters have in place with Tywin at the head of that totem pole or at the foundation of their house, whatever you want to call it. I think that's the only reason Joffrey could get away with this craziness because when Joffrey flies off the handle, for instance, at that little dinner rehearsal thing before the reception where they're giving him his gifts and Tyrion bestows upon him that huge book. And then he takes his Valerian steel sword and just chops it to pieces. He says, thank you. Tyrion's even looking at him like, oh, wow, he's being gracious once. This is suspicious. And then in two frames, he's already chopping the book up with the sword, right? And I'm always watching Tywin in, you know, off to the side in scenes like that to see how he reacts. And he reacts with a sort of nobility of Cersei does the same thing of this isn't really happening. We're kind of just ignoring this or this is, you know what I mean? Like this is just normal. This is the way it is. They have this kind of regal stature that doesn't where they don't show their emotions about, they're not going to admonish Joffrey certainly in front of everybody and that kind of thing. It's about being stately and being a family and being like, this is who we are type of thing and defending each other or whatever, no matter what. And I think not only that, Kyle, but you know what I noticed in this season too? Everybody off camera or off to the side, maybe in the background in a rack focus or something, everybody's in character, even when they're not the subject of the shot. Everybody, for every scene, it's amazing. Like their personality is, is in that scene, how they would really react, how you think that character would really react. They're reacting. I, I never caught a thing where it's awkward or Brienne's doing something weird or Lady Olena or... You know what I mean? Like everybody's in their role. Everybody's just in it. And um, that was one thing I checked with Tywin with that, especially with Joffrey, because you want to see how they're reacting to their king, their king's really bad behavior. Yeah. It's... And they do. They react like it's like it's not happening. You know, like they're not going to acknowledge how bad it is. You're totally right. It's just, again, it's so... I find it so interesting. They really could have done something about this. The people in power really could have done something about this. I mean, there are other... Tom and Art already always existed. It's not like it was unheard of in the in real history for people to be passed over or yeah, there you go. I'm not saying killed, but I mean you know, regicide. I'm not saying it's necessarily the right thing to do, but I don't know. It just that's one thing that just bothered me because everything seems to be so well conducted and thoughtful. And I understand the comic evil. I get it. He's like fucking Cobra Commander. I get it. Like, but I don't. <laughs> I don't know that it plays because like I was saying, even chaotic, evil people in real life didn't act like that. Like, yeah, at least in more modernity. And maybe that's part of why I'm looking at it through the wrong lens, because it's both fiction and not modern by our modern sense. But when you think about Joseph Solomon talking to the Pollock Bureau, he wasn't like dragging out fucking prisoners and killing them in front of them or something like that or like cutting their tongues out he was doing it behind closed doors he was sending right. them to siberia or exiling them or assassinating them or poisoning <laughs> them somewhere else you know that's the only that's the thing that just i wanted yeah to get no i think I, I think it's a great i think it's a really great point you know especially because you have this it seems like it's a little bit of like veruca salt with a murderous army at her back like veruca salt with homicidal tendencies like it's not just impetuous it's not just brattiness it's that you're going to get murdered if you right. run afoul of this person and you may not even run afoul you it might be perceived that you run afoul that's all it's going to take and to the probably detriment of your entire kingdom you know it's it's completely it's completely self-indulgent 
It's just really like him acting badly. And that's of paramount importance for Joffrey. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's very well put. Yeah, he's uh, he's like a Batman villain in some way. And I don't necessarily mean it as an insult. It's just it is what it is. All right, let's move over to Sansa, Baelish, all the stuff that's going on with mm. them in the Vale. So Sansa escapes, as we noted, thanks to Sir Dantos, who she helped kindly in a previous season. He gave her jewelry, part of this fake house that he was part of, maybe never part of. I don't know how it's hollered. And one of the vials or one of the jewels in that glass jewelry that Baelish later reveals that she he had made was a vial of poison that was then used to to kill the king, the king. So I wanted to (laughs) ask you about all this because. Baelish is acting, obviously, in self He's acting for himself first, and then he's also acting on behalf of the Starks in some weird way because he he was in love with this woman. And so he goes to the Vale, kind of plays up his love for the Lady of the Vale and her weird ass son and all of this kind of shit. <laughs> and I really like how they kind of continue to thread this needle where like, is Baelish bad? Is he not bad? Like what? He's powerful. He's certainly not neutral in his outlook but i like how they kind of continue to play with that because i especially love that scene near the end of the season when he kills aunt liza and then although she's like kind of going off the deep end anyway but then there's that scene where sansa makes it seem like she's going to tell on him and she even says like i'm sorry to say this but then reveals her true identity instead and really just plays them. And finally, Sansa kind of has like is on the initiative for once, which is kind of interesting. She's just so abused. I don't necessarily like that character so much, but she's just so downtrodden and abused. It's like, holy moly, man, like give this girl a break. God. So what do you make about that whole arc in the veil? Kind of trying to get them involved and Baelish and helping her escape and and all the rest. Yeah, you know, I love that there's this plot for, you know, it starts with Joffrey's murder. I love this is plot that goes on that's completely off camera that we don't know anything about right. that you would ascertain that Olena has something to do with it. Maybe some of the other Tyrells, Littlefinger, Peter Baelish. Does Sir Dantos even know anything beyond the fact that they're going to, quote unquote, rescue Arya, uh, Sansa rather, and whisk her away? D- does he know? You You could see him. He seems like a like a pretty gentle dude. Like, does he even know about the murder plot initially? I'm not sure, but I love the fact that there's some sort of conspiracy going on. And then, you know, we find out a lot of things when Littlefinger steals away Sansa to the veil. And we find out that I I love the Lysa character. I love the Aunt Lysa character because she really is one sandwich short of a picnic. She's completely crazy. You could see why her son is is it is it Robin the weak or Robin the the coward? I forget what they call yeah, him. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Towards I'll the look, end of it, I'll, I'll look. But uh, I love the fact that you could see that sick. You know, she's breastfeeding her son, her prepubescent adolescent son, and there's a sickness there. There's a real creepiness to the eerie to the veil for me. It's seen. It's really beautiful, but it's really empty. It seems very cold. Um, no pun intended, but it's a very eerie place for me. Every time we end up there, I'm like, wow, this place is really gives me the creeps. And I think Lysa's at the center of that. And then we find out that she was the one who killed John Aaron. She poisoned her husband, who was 
Robert and Ned's mentor. He wasn't, it wasn't some murder conspiracy. She did it in order to pursue a relationship with Peter Baelish, with Littlefinger. So we find out all this crazy stuff. And once again, Sansa is mixed up in all of this shit that she doesn't need. And it's true what you say about Baelish. He's what one of the last characters where you're really wondering, is he friend or foe? And where his alliances are. Because even by the end of this season, we know Varys is on the up and up. And he was, we questioned him for a while. He even sits on trial against Tyrion. If we find out that's a part of the plot to help Tyrion. But with Littlefinger, into season four, you're like, what is this guy's game? And you're so worried for Sansa because of all she's already been through. And this guy is still needling her and sort of bringing her along and leading her on and all these crazy things. So that arc was really very interesting for me. And then, of course, just straight up, you know, murders Lysa, just throws her through the through the moon door. And it's like, whoa, that's crazy. Right after she's talking about bodies breaking on the rocks below. Right. right? Seconds after she's being she's being tossed out of that, out of that skylight, <laughs> whatever it is, floor yeah, light. It's awesome. Yeah, it's super cool. I love that. All right. There's let me think here. Is there anything else to say about Sansa? I don't think I have anything to say about her right now. I want to move on instead to Ramsey Bolton. Oh. Ramsey Snow. Mac Daddy. Uh, X4 wrote and said, hi, guys, is Ramsey the closest we've had to a truly evil character so far? Or do you think he's just acting out for daddy's attention? The man has shown no mercy or redeeming qualities up to this point. Other characters are performing evil acts in the name of God's Lord's gold and duty. But Ramsey truly gets off on torturing and killing entire towns of people needlessly. At least Joffrey's issues, rest in peace, can be blamed on his crazy incest brain. (laughs) Yeah, but you can't make that excuse because look at Marcella and look at Tolman. Yeah, they're fine. I agree with that. Right? Yeah. I, I totally agree. It would be one scapegoat you could kind of you could kind of allude to, but I don't think so. So to Mac Daddy X4's inquiry, mm. what do you make of this the arc with Ramsey? It's it's so interesting because I don't understand. I'm sure there's more again, more texture in the book, but I just don't understand the intent. Like, why are you doing this? And I guess it really was his intention always to break this guy to use him in this way. I don't know. I don't. Is he, this, is he that smart? I don't, I don't. Or is he just sociopathic? He obviously has this desire to you know he's a bastard so to, to receive the proper name and, and, right. and fly the banner in a, in a meaningful way and all that and he ends up getting that through his work but i am curious what you make about ramsey snow slash bolton and like you have the shaving scene which is interesting oh, and dude. obviously the chase scene with the dogs which is interesting and you know just totally broken them what do you make of uh, ramsey this season yeah, I mean, Ramsey, you think of all the wicked characters in this show, Cersei, Tywin. With Cersei and Tywin, they're capable of enormous atrocities. Look at the wed- Red Wedding or just everything Cersei's done. But you know that the reasoning behind everything they do, all their maneuvering is the family at the center of that, You know, promoting the Lannisters and all of that. With Joffrey, he is maybe the worst because he's got, this evil nature, but he's really a coward, which we know. Ramsey is interesting because he's a lot like Joffrey in so far as that capacity for evil, but he's got the courage, the conviction, the muscle, and the skill, which makes him very dangerous. You know what I mean? And I think what's making him operate, I think you have a great point here, Kyle. I think at the center of that 
is him, his bastard status and wanting to please his father, which is a theme that runs, I think, throughout the veins of this show for a lot of characters. But Roose Bolton is at the center of this, Ramsey's dad. And I think what makes Ramsey so scary is the fact that he has the means and the willingness to do this all himself. You know, he is sickeningly evil. But he also, you know, like when, what's her name, Yara, comes to rescue Theon, Ramsey's right there on the front line fighting her and her host off. You know what I mean? He's, he's a dangerous person because he's not afraid to step up and sort of back up. You know, he, again, that conviction, although evil, it makes him really a frightening character. And it's an interesting point of what you say about him pulling the puppet strings for Theon. Was that a plan all along? We know he's a psychopath. Was it just slowly unfurling that he figured out that he was going to do that? Is there some sort of criminal genius at the center of it, which makes him even more horrifying? I'm not sure. But, you know, shout out to that character because it's really played well. And even now on multiple viewings and repeated watchings, he's not one of my favorites because I think he really does make me uneasy. You know, you really... and. He'll continue to do that until, you know, finally he doesn't anymore. But, um, and that's in future seasons. But I think it is a good job and it is a good character. And that shaving scene where he's demonstrating to his dad that he's got this guy, this, you know, Theon's a zombie and I've got him eating out of my hand. Check this out. I'm going to basically belittle the shit out of him while he's shaving me with a straight razor. It's, it's pretty brilliant writing. Now, I don't know if that was in the book. I'm sure it must be. But that's just a brilliant way to demonstrate just the way, just not only the evil, but the manipulation. And we already knew Theon was sort of weak-willed or he has that bipolar nature where he doesn't know where his alliances lie anyway. So he was just easy pickings for Ramsay. And it is an interesting point if this was intentional all along or this just kind of played out for Ramsey in a beneficial way for him. I don't know. I'm glad you brought up too, which the interesting scene of Yara coming to save him and he's just not up to this. He actually gets a lot of them killed like because he stays behind and he refuses to move quickly. And obviously he's totally brainwashed and poisoned <sighs> and all of this. But it's pretty heartbreaking when she's like relieving re- and she's like, he's not, you know, my brother is dead or whatever. He's so, dead. That, so that's that. But it is interesting. And the, the acting is very good. I am curious again, as usual, please don't write in because I don't want it spoiled for me. But, you know, I am curious about the texture shown from the the books, because I think that there's probably more there that I would like to know. But yeah, you would think it's more fleshed out. Indeed. You know. All right. Caleb Bryant wrote in said sander colin and the red viper dagan how did you guys feel about Arya and the hound's father daughter dynamic in this season i love the way they both teach and learn from each other in what feels like an integral chapter for both of their arcs i always consider season four to be the peak of thrones for me for Arya and the hound and of course the introduction conclusion of my favorite character oberon yes and he, and so he says thanks for all the laughs and for your authenticity thank you caleb for writing in oh thanks Very sweet. so what did you make of Arya and the hound culminating in what appears to be his death he's left for dead there is something interesting about watching them come together it's uneasy alliance 
Yes. Arya continues to tell him that she's going to kill him. You almost well kind of said. feel bad for him a little bit, which is interesting. I always love when stories tug on your heartstrings a little bit with the characters that you really have no right or interest in in understanding to that extent to maybe sympathize with them a little bit. The scene with the fire when he gets bit when they're at the, the abandoned farmstead or whatever, and he realizes that there's a bounty out on his head and just idiots are attacking him. It's actually pretty funny, but he is scared shitless of the fire and explains what happened and how his father lied about what happened. So he's never really even had any true justice. And there's, there's a lot to this character. I like this character a lot and got to give a shout out to Micah because she loves this character too. What do you make of Arya oh, and cool. Hound in this, uh, in this story? so far yeah it's a major part of this season Arya and the hound and their journey and you know it got me thinking a lot about this character with the hound with with uh sandor because he once he left king's landing and sort of swore off his alliance to joffrey and he left at the battle of the blackwater right he he's really out to survive now he's all about survival so at first you have him escorting Arya in order to get the bounty off her when he was going to the bridge to bring her to the phrase when he was go when he you know they ends up they they're going their last resort is to go to the Erie and bring her bring Arya to her aunt Lysa and that doesn't work out. But through this all, there's this very contentious relationship, obviously, this animosity. And it's less father, daughter, but over the course of season four, there is this thawing. And it becomes this prisoner you know, this sort of warden prisoner relationship kind of becomes this mentor protege relationship. And he teaches Arya how to, you know, how to kill, how to, how to fight, how to think, how to survive. And there's this thawing until they come across Brienne. And now you mentioned it very early in the episode, Kyle, in our discussion before how this, this show does this wonderfully. You'll get characters now meeting for the first time and this will this has happened and will continue to happen. Now you have Brienne and the Hound sharing a scene, and they they're at odds for what they want for the Star Kids. And this fight that's a first of all that fight between Brienne, Lady Brienne, and the Hound is one of my favorite moments of season four. It is so brutal, and you have this really wonderful sort of conflict between pretty evenly matched i would say powers and the way it goes down and brienne of course gets the upper hand and you find out that you know at the end when Arya leaves the hound for dead he's got a broken leg he's got some compound fracture he can't move and he's in the middle of that you know on that mountainside the hill and she leaves him she doesn't put him out of his misery like he begs she just kind of leaves him there Arya just kind of leaves him there for dead and you know, the Hound did torture her a lot. You know, he really picked on her. He really sort of gave her a hard time. So that was a moment where I remember thinking for the first time, how is this going to play out? Is she going to help him? We don't want to lose the Hound because he's such a great character. And of course, he's got that Achilles heel with the fire. He's a very interesting character. And you want to see how it's going to play out for him, especially now because he's not operating under a lord. He's kind of out on his own. So there is some sympathy there. You know, he does that farmer and, and his daughter takes them in and he ends up mugging the guy. And you realize he's not a bad guy, the hound. He's just, he's got to survive. He's doing whatever it takes to survive. And Arya is inherently good. So she's taking exception to the things that he's doing. But at the same time, he's kind of teaching her 
You got to be, it's not all about being good. You got to be pragmatic if you want to survive. Like he says to her, how many Starks have to lose their head for you to realize this is how you survive, you know? So it's really great, very interesting, and sort of our road game in this season too, where they're journeying from place to place where a lot of characters are more static, whether they're at the wall or they're saddled up in King's Landing or they're somewhere else. They're moving from place to place. So that's a really, that, that kinetic sort of thing where, you know, there's sort of this road team, which I enjoyed. I was sorry to kind of see that come to, to an end as much as I loved seeing Brienne meet the Hound. I mean, those are the kind of payoff moments. Now, this show doesn't give you a lot as far as what we talked about, satisfying things. It's not going to pull punches. You're going to lose characters that you love, but you will see characters crossing paths. And I love how they do that because it just adds so much more dimension when two characters come together, then you have this whole other dimension to both of their characters and it kind of builds. So cool. I don't know any other show that does it like this. And maybe it's the sheer amount of characters. There are a lot of characters. It must be very difficult to so many keep track of from a creative standpoint. I like too, that I think it's Brienne that alerts them to the fact that like the political situation has totally changed because I think that, when they meet, I'm pretty sure Brienne's the one that says, like, the king's dead, like, all this crazy, and they're, and they, I think they both look at each other, like, oh, like, don't even they're, know. They're, and they, right. And there's, there's exceedingly few places for them to even go. That's what's so funny about, about the situation with these two is that with Arya and the Hound is that the Hound is just running out of options. Like, he was originally doing it out of pure greed. And now, yes. like you said, he is just trying to survive and kind of keeping his collateral, but they have an uneasy alliance. I, he lets him keep her, you know, lets her keep her sword. She has a horse and all the rest. So it is fun to watch them evolve. And you almost want Arya to pay it back with some good spirit in this. But she's con- she's consistent, at least, that she wants this guy dead. I mean, you remember when he was fighting the Brotherhood and she was like screaming for them to kill him. And so can't blame her either. She's been through the ringer oh, as God, well. The ringer. And uh, I'm glad you brought up Brienne because I wanted to just mention briefly. I really enjoy the combination of her and Podrick. Because I just feel like that Podrick character is awesome. And for some reason, he's a great compliment to both to both Tyrion and later to Brienne. What did what do you make of their combination and his like kind of insistence on going with her? He doesn't know how to ride a horse. He doesn't know how to cook. He doesn't know how to really do anything. It's it's funny, but very endearing. And he sticks with it. But it's also out of survival for him because he knows that he's going to be in serious trouble if anyone finds him as the, as Tyrion's squire. I mean, his his days are numbered. Yeah, I love Podrick because he's so loyal and he really does serve Tyrion so well. That's a really tearjerker moment for me when they're saying Tyrion and Podrick are saying their goodbyes in Tyrion's cell. And Tyrion dispatches him. He says, Look, once they get their wherewithal, they get their druthers and they realize we're associated, you're dead. So you need to get out of here now. So Braun and Jamie and Tyrion sort of orchestrate this thing for Brienne to go off with Podrick as her squire. And, you know, she's reluctant too, because she's kind of used to being this lone wolf. And I love the the dynamic of Podrick wanting to serve and being sort of very willing and very loyal and hardworking. But once they get out there on the road, you realize he's been in the service of Tyrion for too long. Really what he does is hang out and spend time, keeps Tyrion company, drinks with him. Right. He doesn't do a lot. So when he gets out, he can't ride. He can't fight. He doesn't know how to do anything. And then you real, and then he's drinking in the in the inn, and yeah, he's, he's like, like "Don't get drunk." Yeah, he's like slamming it, because <laughs> he's used to a certain way of living. He's used to being Tyrion's 
you know, aide. And now he's got to be a straight up squire. But I love that he has such a lovable quality. Not only is he noble, and we see how brave he is when he saves Tyrion at the Blackwater from that murderous Lannister guard, but he's also got that sort of spirit that he wants to do well. And he's just inherently good. He's just a fun character. To, and, you know, sort of the rapport that he develops with Brienne and the fact that he's fucking up. He doesn't even keep an eye on Arya. So right. she gets kind of lost in the whole thing with when Brienne's fighting the Hound and all that. So, but it's, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And again, it's like one of those things where I wouldn't have ever seen this coming a couple of seasons ago where Podrick and Brienne were going to go out together. But, you know, that was, it used to be Brienne and Jamie. Now it's Podrick. It's, it's so fun, and I love the fact that the characters sort of branch out and form relationships with other existing characters. Again, it just makes it, it brings out the character more when you see them set against more characters. Super fun. Before we move to the wall and north of the wall and then across the narrow sea as well, we must touch on one more character more deeply. And the champ wrote in about this. It says, am I the only one disappointed that we never got to see Jamie at full power we hear all this talk about how Jamie is the greatest swordsman in all the lands, but we only see Jamie fight Ned in season one, a poorly choreographed fight, if I might, I might add. Everything else Jamie did was done off screen. In season three, he fought Brienne, but he was in a cage for over a year and out of practice. Mm. I wish we got a flashback or something just to show how badass Jamie is as a warrior. If Jamie was at full power, do you think he would have fought the mountain? Maybe, but I, I wonder, and thanks for writing in the champ, I, I think what's interesting about this character and we had said it in the last episode as well, is that you don't see a lot of what he's all about. You don't see his year plus or more, I think, in captivity. And probably most interestingly, and I've brought this up in the past, is that probably one of most, the most important scenes in the mythos of the, the show is the scene when the king is killed by Jamie, and so many people are there and present for it. You hear about it constantly, but never see it, which is cool. But I wonder what you make of him here and how we never really get to see him at full power. We kind of see him more feeble. I think it's a nice contrast between the expectations of who Jamie is and, and the extent of what he's capable of, especially as we talked about with Braun kind of trying to train him and him being at a massive deficit with his left hand. So what do you make about Jamie here? Yeah. One of the biggest tragedies that plays out from being this despicable character in season one that you really hate to realizing, you know, at the center of this character, it's like, what is a character become when they lose the thing that they were identified with. You know, he's this legendary warrior, one of the greatest in Westeros. And I think on one hand, I agree. It would have been cool to see a little more of Jamie in action. But what's really important at the middle of everything is that the fact of everything he was known for, everything that he was associated with or that he identified himself as was lost when his hand was cut off. And not only that, but he's aging. He's 40 years old. In this season. And it is interesting that the one fight that you get to see against, you know, a, a proper rival in Ned Stark, one of the Lannister soldiers interferes. So you don't even really, even in that fight, you don't get a proper sense of what Jamie's capable of because, you know, somebody barges in. But it is, he's such a tragic character because you're wondering how he's going to, where does Jamie go from here? He has no hand. He's willing, he's reluctant at first, but willing to train under Braun, try to use his left hand. Doesn't work out. And you're wondering, you really feel sympathy for him. Where does he go from here? But you know what, Kyle? In this season, and Jamie, you know, he inherits 
this Valerian steel sword from his dad. He gives it to Brienne. He, there's this love and this friendship and this respect with Brienne. And a lot of Jamie is good in this season, but he does a really despicable thing in season four. He basically rapes Cersei. Yeah, yeah. And on top of his dead son's funeral pyre. It's fucked. You know what I mean? So it's so weird because you can look at from A to Z, from start to finish of season four, you could be like, wow, Jamie is really turning into a good guy. You know, he's a proper, noble, righteous dude. You could see him changing. Maybe he's more like Tyrion, where he's a little less Lannister than we initially thought. But then that happens. And you realize that his lust or infatuation or love, whatever you want to call it, for his sister is really his downfall. It's really, you know, sort of the black spot on his soul that he seems to not be able to um, escape from. And we'll see more of that in beyond season four. But that's what's so interesting to Jamie. It's uh, for me about Jamie where, you know, he doesn't, he wants to stay in the Kingsguard. He doesn't want to have a family. You know, Tywin wants him to go to Casterly Rock, take on a proper wife. Tywin wants Jamie to continue his lineage. And Jamie just wants to stay on as a Kingsguard, which is they basically take the life of, I don't know what you would call it, like a priest in some ways, where their 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 duty is to serve the king and to serve the realm. So that and the only thing that kind of has Jamie tempted away from that is to save Tyrion. So really it's just his love for Tyrion and his, I would say hang up with Cersei that's really at the center of his personality now because the swordsman thing it's not gonna doesn't mean anything anymore he says while he's raping her you're a hateful woman it's unbelievable scene I'm glad I'm glad you brought up Casterly Rock because do we ever see it I don't think so which is now maybe in the future I don't yeah I don't up to this point I don't yeah we don't actually they don't ever go there which is nice restraint i mean i'm sure it's cheaper and easier for them not to but i think right. that that's a, that's a also a creative decision at some point because money is by the second and third season of the show money and production assets are of no issue for hbo exactly shows everything so i think that that's a decision and i don't know if that's shared in the book or not or if they just constantly refer to it it would be cool to see it i, I, I kind of visualize it it's nice because it's one of the few things that i visualize where i'm like i think it looks like this but who the hell really knows because they haven't ruined it on hbo for me yet I, and, I don't, <laughs> and i don't remember if it's in the future i think it might be but I have no clue. All right. Dig, let's go to the north and go to the wall, beyond the wall, at the wall. Castle Black. We have about 100 Night's Watchmen guarding the boundary between the wildlings and more civilized humanity. In fact, I I forgot about this, but I kind of dug it. Like All of season nine is dedicated just to the fight at the wall. I don't think it ever leaves, which is which implanted in my mind this idea that maybe this could have been delivered like this more, which would have been cool. Like having entire episodes that are just about one piece of the arc. Yeah. Move on like that might've been a little less confusing, but I know why they did it here is a lot to, to get through at the wall when you're watching it, the King of the North or the King uh, of the wildlings, uh, Mance Raider promises a fire and the fire comes. It's lit in the forest outside North of the wall and they attack some really cool stuff here. And watching the preparations at the wall are cool, too. The different windows, the scythe, the oil that they drop, the different archery and all of this. I love seeing just a few of the 
giants the ones riding a mammoth which is cool they hitch it to the door and try to use that they light them all on fire then they use like uh some sort of ballista to kill one of the one of the giants the other giant freaks out you find out that the giant that freaks out and kills a few of the humans in the tunnel was like the king of the giants so a lot of really interesting stuff and of course it all is capped off ultimately by the by Stannis coming and basically cutting down the the wildlings so what do you make of everything that's going on north of the wall including going back to craster's keep and kind of killing the the turncoats and all the rest there's a lot going on up there a lot to say what do you want to touch on yeah i mean it's big in this season and you know at the at the root of things is the fact that the this unified group huge horde of wildlings they need to have access to the south of the wall for the coming danger to escape you know these these zombies and they know it and they have to fight for that and so you have Mance Raider and his nine unified tribes this giant posse including we meet the Thens for the first time, which are like a cannibalistic horde of wildlings. You get all these really interesting, all these really interesting sort of primitive characters that are, you know, they need to, this sort of attack on the wall is necessary for them. And Jon Snow, of course, is at the middle of it. Egret, Tormund, Giants, Bane, you have all these great characters. I love the fact of, you have this huge set piece battle that I saw somebody, whether the showrunners or I saw George R. R. Martin talk about this, where we talk about Battle of the Blackwater. That was a pretty cool battle, but they wanted to have this giant set piece battle akin to Lord of the Rings Battle of the Five Armies. Huge, a lot of stuff going on, really kind of a reveal of what each side is capable of. And you get that with the giants, with the mammoths, with the vast amount of warriors. And then, of course, with the Night's Watch and the Brotherhood, you get the, you know, the, their sort of war infrastructure with the barrels and with that giant sort of pendulum anchor that comes down and scrapes the yeah, wall the of yeah, climbers. It's super, yeah, it's super cool. Crazy shit. It's big. The scope of it is so big. It feels like nothing we saw we have seen so far from Game of Thrones, which is really cool. But what I love at the end of that battle with so many sort of casualties on each side that you realize the Night's Watch is down to like the Brotherhood's down to like 50 or 60 guys. That was them sort of defending it for one night. So, you know, even after the end of that huge battle that they really don't ultimately have a chance. And Jon Snow goes out to basically assassinate Mance Raider. Now, it's sort of handled like a parlay. I love that scene. And shout out to Kieran Hines, who plays Mance Raider. I think he's a wonderful actor. Yeah, I great. love that scene where they're sitting down and Jon Snow's intention is to assassinate this man. But there's something still so fair and understandable about Mance Raider in that moment where he's angry. He, he, you know, where's Tormund? You killed this giant. He was the king of the giants. You know, I lost a lot of men. But he's still, there's a fairness and an even-handedness, a very king-like, maybe more kingly than most of the kings we've seen so far, the king beyond the wall. And I had forgotten that Stannis and Davos ride in to basically rescue the Night's Watch. I forgot all about that. So that was a really pleasant surprise that I really, 
I really completely lost track of. And to see Stannis and Melisandre and Davos at the wall at Castle Black or wherever they are was really cool. Because I totally, you weren't kind of drawing those characters up on that parallel where they're going to all, all of a sudden end up in the North. So that was a really neat surprise. And it does make sense because that was the only way the wall wasn't going to be overtaken by the 100,000 wildlings and, and Mance Raider. But I, lo- I, lo- I really was reminded how much I love the Mance Raider character because you really see, you can really understand things from his perspective and from the wildling perspective with this impending danger that's coming for everybody that again, there we talked about this in season three, they're the ones on the, on the front lines of that, that realized it before anybody else realized. Right. And they it. So just want a sense of urgency is they, paramount. It, well, I think I don't know. Again, I don't know what happens in the book, but Mance is the, like in the, in the ninth episode for the first time really talks about how like they don't really want violence necessarily. Like right. they just want to be on the other side of the wall. And, that the, the the walls construction those many hundreds or thousands of years ago has just kind of arbitrarily isolated them near to the danger and like all they want to do is get through but it's not that simple of course because they're going to take up a ton of space and they sure eat and they're representing some of them eat people right exactly there's all these <laughs> there's exactly there's all these different races as well right but also I, in fact i love that scene where the the cowardly ex-commander of the guard the the guards in oh, yeah. the King's Landing is like you know, still stammering and saying like giants don't exist. He's like that's a that giant guy. riding a mammoth. Slint, slint. Hey, that dude. Yeah, he sucks. Great, great. It's so interesting how he kind of like hangs around like that character. Yeah, hangs around for a while. Because Tyrion banishes him to the wall. Then all of a sudden he's like on the whatever. He's a lord of the wall. It's like oh man, you know. <laughs> yeah, indeed. He kind of just like falls in with the leadership there. But yeah, you can't really blame Mance for wanting that. But it's important to remember too that I I believe that like they're for the army is a hundred thousand strong, but that's not all of them. I mean, it's just the people that are fighting in the army. They're representing a lot more. So to let them in, let's say you're they're representing hundreds of thousands of people all told. They're they're their women fight, but their children and their elderly and whatever. It's a lot to ask, but it's not a huge surprise nonetheless to be asked that. I mean, what else do you want them to do? They know right. that they can't fight and win. And uh, so I enjoy that as well. And yeah, seeing Stannis come in, I totally forgotten about that. In fact, when like they, you see the horses and it's kind of hard to identify their flags in the first shots, I'm like, who the fuck is that? I don't remember this. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's Stannis and Sir Davos. And again, as you said, and as we noted earlier, seeing just the different combinations of characters. Now Jon Snow with Melisandre and like all this. It's, uh, it's cool. And I wonder, I often wonder with shows that last this long, how... Like, I've wondered that with Battlestar Galactica and others where it's like characters kind of just stick with each other. You think about in Battlestar Galactica number six and Gaius, like they're just always together for seasons. They're just together. Is it a a relief to get away from that person or is it difficult because you get so used to working with that one person and working off that person and they're kind of like shaking it up finally. So it's pretty exciting from that perspective, just as the the script takes its course. I now want to go across the narrow sea, go to Bravos and all these other uh, locations. I'm curious, first of all, what you make of the introduction of the Iron Bank, which is probably one of my favorite parts of the story, although they just touch on it briefly. They obviously reject Stannis, at least at first. But this idea that is touched on in the third season as well, when Tywin is talking about their money situation, and actually might be in this season. No, in fact, I think it's in this season when he tells Cersei that like our gold 
store like our mines haven't even produced gold in three years like we're basically broke i found that fascinating because they're basically creating their own currency they it explains a, a lot about how they are so rich it's because they are literally mining the money and digging it out of the ground so that's obviously yeah. a huge advantage to them but i love this idea of these people that do not give a fuck they really don't and and i like how they make it seem like they they play up this idea that they're just faces like it's just a group of people and then another group of people and so on and so forth and stannis goes to the iron bank and they make him wait for hours and they just they they reject him and they just say no and they don't care i i like this idea of there being a higher power this is like an i would love to know more about this and we do but i'd love to know even more about the iron bank it reminds me of my story that i made up for star wars when we did our how we would have written a star wars sequel i love and that I, one and thank you and i have this idea of like having a corporation involved and like what that looks like corporate might and money just that angle and and this brings in that angle like that that even in this fictional old world the be all end all is money and they are totally affixed only to that and only to what will pay them back their investments so what do you make of uh the iron bank yeah, man. I mean, what is going on with Bravos? It's I'm so interested in Bravos. I always want to know more. You have the House of Black and White, the Faceless Men, the Water Dancing, the Dancing Masters, the Swordsman's Ship, the Iron Bank. There's so many crazy things. Why isn't this like King's Landing? That's what I keep asking myself. Why isn't this the center of everything? Sort of the that everything rotates around. But the Iron Bank was handled really cool because, you know, again they leave. Stannis and Davos waiting. They, when they finally do come out, they're very unassuming. You know, they're not fancily dressed or of, of great stature. There's no pageantry there because the money, the power is the money. They don't need to act like that. In fact, they're very unassuming looking dudes that come out. And the guy that Davos and Stannis are having the exchange with doesn't have a care in the world. You know, he's, you, you know, that there's, there's a route to that power. And the money and and what you said, it's not about King's Landing or the Ironborn or Dorn or, you know, the North. It's about it's ExxonMobil, right? It's like right. it's the corporation. It's the Bank of America. It's the money that rules everything. Yeah. And that's the head of the that's the head of the food chain. That's the top of the food chain over there. And uh it was interesting to see that and get a little glimpse of that that world. And then, of course, that sets the wheels in motion for Davos to get Saladar San, hire his fleet back, and actually build an army so they could go to rescue the Wall and the Night's Watch and the Brotherhood. So that was a really interesting chain of events. But I love seeing, and again, you know, the season ends with Arya heading to Bravos too. She gives a sailor the coin, and um, she's taken to. She's sort of revered and saying, "Yeah, of course." Like, yeah, there's like a mystique. Like, they, yeah, they're like, it's it's cool. Like, they all somehow so know. cool. Yeah, it's neat. I need to know more about Bravos, so I hope we do. I don't remember where it goes from here. I I do remember a couple of characters later in the in the run of seasons heading to Bravos again, but I hope we learn more about it because it's very interesting. Uh, people have written in about this. I think this is true that there's like a shit ton of exterior stuff written about Game of Thrones that is all about all of this stuff that I think is part of the reason why the new books haven't been written is because he kind of got George Martin. I don't know if he was writing or just approving, just kind of he getting obsessed with like, the, yeah, like the encyclopedic stuff and like getting all the official stuff. And of course he was making hand over fist money and all the rest. <laughs> that doesn't hurt, but it's uh, so I, my hope is that if I do relent and finally read the books, I'm trying 
that maybe I'll be able to because I don't want to go into those books first. I feel like that's poserish and stupid. Like you really got to read the core material first. That would be like reading. Yeah. Similarian, the Similarian or something. Yeah, without, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Similarian. I can never say it without having read <laughs> The Lord of the Rings. So I'm trying. But I know that that stuff's out there and it, and it really adds all that stuff. And it makes me excited to put, although a little daunting to put in the legwork to like earn that as it were. Yeah, but it's nice to know the world building is there. Indeed. Yeah, for sure. Let's stay over there finally and talk and there's other things we can talk about if you'd like but the big the last big thing we need to talk about of course is what's going on with khaleesi denarius <laughs> as she becomes the breaker of chains more and more and she's freeing all of the slaves and and i like some of this stuff that there's a few things that worth touching on i think and I'll, I'll throw it over to you but one is just kind of the betrayal she experiences near the end and the betrayal that i think the audience kind of feels on her behalf because you don't really see it coming and of course i also dig this entire angle of the complexity of freeing slaves i think that it's interesting that they get into that about how some people want to go back to being slaves and some of the slave masters want their rights back and their funeral rights and all these kinds of things and kind of how she's trying to balance this idea that maybe she needs to reinforce seriously reinforce her foundation as a ruler in this other foreign land before she gets any further because she's so eager to cross and and do all these things and take back her, her throne but she's becoming instead being more comfortable becoming or being the queen of this foreign land and this having these these old cell swords that now follow her in two different groups and these ex-slaves it's really interesting but at the same time it's frustrating because it seems so unimportant right now to what is going on in the main story but it, it obviously isn't and then there is a couple other things worth noting too i thought that the, the scene with her dragons getting locked away was sad in some weird way i don't know why it's sad because they're fucking dragons and i dig the love kind of brewing between gray worm and her translator which i, I think is cute to watch as well so talk to me a little bit about what, how you feel about what's going on with Daenerys. I mean, anything you want. Yeah, Grey Worm is so badass that he could still feel, even though he's an unsullied, he could still, like, that's the very definition of power. He might be the most powerful person in Westeros and Essos, which is amazing. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. This might be my favorite bit for Daenerys because, you know, she commands this massive army of Unsullied, right? She's got wonderful commanders, some of the best fighters in the land and Ser Jorah and Grey Worm and Barristan and Dario and the Second Sons. Seems like she's got all her ducks in a row and that everything should go swimmingly, but now she's got to deal with all the political repercussions of her slave liberation tour of Slavers, Slavers Bay and everything that's like what you said, like there's some of these slaves 60, 70, 80 years old this infrastructure, the way they live their lives in this part of the land, this is all they knew. This is this was, even though it's not sort of by Westeros or by Western standards in this world, it's not proper or the way it should go. This is there was comfort in that. So now she's dealing with that, and I love the realism of these dragons sort of being a little bit uncontrollable as they get older. You know, they're murdering go livestock. They're murdering children. That's not, it's a little more realistic than, you know, this Rydia in Final Fantasy where she could just call on animals and they do whatever, do her bidding. Like they're wild creatures. You know, Jorah warns her of that. I don't know if that was early this season or late last season, but where they're still dragons and you're the mother of dragons, but 
you know, this might be kind of tough going as they get older to control these wild beasts. I love the realism of that, where she actually, one's sort of off on its own. They don't even know where it is. And the other two have to be locked up before they murder any more people or, you know, take any more money from these poor people in livestock. So I like the fact that she's dealing with all these political repercussions and actually having to not just be a liberator now, but actually be a ruler. And she says, well, I'll rule. And it's hard. She's seeing lines of people. They all have their problems. I love that one thing where I guess she comes into the last slaver city. I guess that's Marine, where they have the, they kind of try to warn Daenerys away by having the crucified kids right. for 160 miles every mile, like as mile markers or whatever. And the way that just adds fuel to her fire, she's like, oh, fuck that. You know and they, send, mean? That, they send out the champion who's. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a great Dario moment. By the, by the way, very confusing because Dario's a new actor in this. Yeah, scene. I don't know. Um, it's funny because Michael looked into that because it was, she's like, I didn't realize that either. I'm like, and apparently like the actor himself doesn't know why he wasn't brought back. Oh, really? Yeah. Like the original guy. Yeah. That's what he says. I don't, which know. I heard what he was a rapper as well. That original guy, this new guy, I remember being very confused by it and actually probably stupidly thinking this was another character or something. And what happened to the other guy, not realizing it was the same guy, but this guy, this new guy, this new Dario, he's great, but he looks like Shia LaBeouf to me. I I can't, I cannot look at him and not think of Shia LaBeouf. So, but yeah, I thought this was a great one for probably my favorite of Daenerys and and Jorah, and then of course the tragedy. Kyle was thinking of you because Jorah gets found out mm-hmm. from Sir Barristan and then from Daenerys that he was spying for the Baratheons, and I was really thinking about you because I know your your love for Jorah Mormont, but. I was thinking like, I was kind of frustrated because I was thinking, how else could he have handled it? Why didn't he come clean before he was found out? Because right. by the time he was found out, he was on the up and up. He he kind of corrected his wily ways and he was on the straight and narrow. He wasn't betraying her anymore. But I I would imagine maybe it would have went better if he said, look, you know, I was kind of like spying for the Baratheons. And once I got to know you, I, I thought better of it, you know, that type of thing. But he's dispatched. You know, she's like, get out of here by nightfall. Or you're fucked. You know, I'll kill you. And so you feel so bad for Jorah in that moment. It's like, oh, man, but he was he was good now. Yes, he was a shady character in the beginning, but he, he's good now. So I wish he could. He, I do wish he could have handled it differently. It's not the last we'll see of Jorah. I will say that. But um, and it's very interesting how that plays out. But I do feel like she's down a commander. You know, she's down to Barristan, Grey Worm and Dario now. Indeed. And it leaves us in a, a interesting spot as far as the viewer is concerned, because we have a few things in 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 motion right now. Of course, the Barristan thing is interesting just because there's such tension between those two characters. That's kind of relieved like steam mm. there. Not in the way you might want it to go, although I don't mind either character. But we have, as we noted, Brienne versus the Hound and Arya's on the run and Tywin kills Tyrion and Barris helps him escape. And Arya presents the coin to get to Bravos, And there's just a lot kind of hanging out. I'm curious if there's anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about. You know, there was one, and Game of Thrones does this sometimes. We talked about a little bit about the turncloaks with the host of the Brotherhood that kind of holds up at at Craster's and betrays the Night's Watch and everything like that. And you get that one character of Carl, the dagger guy, right? Who, and we didn't talk about Jon Snow, so this is a good opportunity to talk about Jon Snow in this season a little bit more. Sure. But- 
Jon Snow is almost killed by this dude. And this guy is basically a cutthroat from like Flea Bottom or something. And he's just in charge of these, of Craster's sort of whatever, you know, host of, you know, these, these turncoats that they go that Jon Snow takes a small group, Locke and some other guys to basically liberate this place. And um, Jon Snow's this, you know, he's one of our primary characters. He might be the main character in the show. And he's almost killed by this cutthroat if this, if this girl didn't just interfere. And I thought that was really interesting because it makes me realize like, oh shit, like it's, it adds to the realism of the show. In other words, does that work the same way for you where it's like, he, it's not this lordly, it's not Jon Snow fighting, you know, some other, the equivalent of Jon Snow on the opposing side. It's like some guy you would never expect to get the upper hand of Jon Snow and he almost kills him. Yeah. So that was another thing where it's like a reminder of this show where it's like, wow, anything could really happen. I yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, there's a few other things. I I liked seeing the Lord Commander fighting uh, at the, because he's such an asshole, but he obviously can. Oh my God, yeah, Alistair, right? And he's, yeah. he's, he's injured now. He right, survived. I think, yeah, he survived, but I like how, He's like, again, to your point, like they're getting in it. Like there's not a lot of cowards, really. Like they, they do no. back it up when, when the time comes, which is cool. I wanted to ask you about this idea of duels, like the trial by combat. What do you think of that idea? It's so strange because this idea that like you might have done something you might not have, but that it's a way of referring to the God's will, basically. By seeing who wins and who loses in that regard, that's a great in, in way that, to put in that it. arena. And I think they actually explicitly say that. Okay. Is, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. To explain it that way, or else it would just seem like just an excuse for entertainment, right? Which is also very King's Landing and very Lannister, but you know, very cruel Roman Colosseum type of entertainment, bloodthirsty right. entertainment. But right. does seem like an excuse of like, yeah, let's have a battle and a party and we'll watch these guys kill each other, you know type of a thing yeah it's it's interesting i like that it's a thing i like that they didn't just do it once that this is a thing in this place that you know that could be a, if you have somebody brave enough and talented enough to fight for you then you could be innocent <laughs> right it's so it's it's very it's very funny and i i i wonder do you i don't want i don't think trial by combat should be a thing in in society but how do you feel about the idea of dueling that's becoming mm. a thing that people, you know, just on the fringes, people talk about sometimes like, why, why isn't it legal to say like, we're going to go and meet in this place and try to kill each other. I mean, if that's right. what two, if that's what two people want to do and they can sign off, like, why is that necessarily not legal? I'm kind of on the fence on that. And I wonder, I wonder what you, what you think. Can it be like the beat it video where the two guys have to hold hands and then knife each other? Right. Is that a real thing? I like a 50s it. street I, gang like, all right, you with arms length, like you have to keep your hands locked and then you have your switchblade. I know, think it's like, just because it looked cool. That was a da- it was a good dance choreography. Yeah, I think I hope so. That would be weird. I don't the idea of a duel kind of terrifies me because I always think about this when I think about ninja films or samurai. I guess this apply would apply to like Wild West type things. if you're living your life like that, let's say you're a Ronin in medieval Japan or something. You have to, let's say you're a badass swordsman. There's every possibility you're going to run against, run up against somebody even better than you. So if you're living in that type of world, 
do you do anything except train because you want to survive? In other words, like it would be great for me to go out to the bar with my friends and have a drink, but that would probably rob me of training for four hours. And I don't want to get killed in the duel because I know that's my life. Like I could meet up in a duel or a contest with another swordsman or something. We meet on a bridge. I have to cross this way. He has to cross that way. We're locking swords. So it makes me very nervous to think like living in a, in a world where that would be your, if you want to survive and you're not suicidal, then you would have to put all of your time and energy into mastering a craft and there still would be people better than you. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think about this a lot. It really speaks to my crazy brain. Yeah. But I, I can, I can see that. In this world, it would be, it would be, you know, if there's a mountain waiting for you, like, I don't know. Do you, or do you just say, ah, I hope the guy I run into I'm, I'm better than, and I'll just train a medium amount instead of being like the most formidable. I don't know. I don't know. It makes me nervous. I'm glad I'm not, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover, Kyle. Isn't and, it? Uh, I, I always like to say, isn't it incredible that there was a time when the ex secretary of tre- the treasury and the vice president of the United States fought a duel <laughs> and that the vice president killed the ex secretary of the treasury and then ran and got what away. What year was that? 18... 18- Oh five, maybe something like that. All right, it's a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. It's not like we're talking about BC or something somewhere else in a galaxy far, far away. Long time. Eighteen oh four. I was right, dude. That's that is. There's something very romantic about the honor of that, like settling your disputes that way. But horrifying because what if some? What if I just, you know, like, (laughs) what if I like inadvertently insult somebody and i really didn't mean it and or i'm joking around and they don't take it as a joke and now they want to duel with me like it just makes me i don't think i would ever talk or associate with anybody yeah because i was living in that kind of climate because you're not compelled to do it but you look like a bitch if you don't and that's the thing but a lot of people so the the drama around that apparently is that and i don't know much about dueling or anything but is that it was traditional to miss and to just okay. say that we you did it. And so Hamilton apparently shot in the air and then he was just shot. I guess. Wow. While doing after that. throwing by, his by, opportunity. By right. Wow. Then he yeah, and that, I think you have told me that before. Which is interesting because it speaks to varying levels of anger too. Like he was so angry that he wasn't gonna relent. And yeah, there's something really again, it's a romantic notion, but yeah, like you said, and then you would have to do it because that whole thing of a coward dies a million deaths. And I do, I do attest to that. I, I, you can't in the moment you can't be a coward because I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's easier said than done, but I definitely go in for that philosophy of like you have to just you know sometimes you just got to be a man type of thing. No, I, I've been, wanna, I've I don't want to do that. I've I don't been really want to live like that. I don't. I mean, <laughs> I haven't since I was younger, but I've gone in where it's like you just. You know, like you're on you're on the spot and you gotta you gotta throw down. I mean, I've gotten the shit out of for that. But I'm glad that I see I've gotten beat up, but I'm glad that I've gotten beat up as opposed to just running away. At least I tried. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can't live that down. Another thing I wanted to touch on was this idea of they talk about old houses and how houses come and go. I find this fascinating that houses are created they they mentioned a couple of seasons ago with sir davos for instance that he created it when we talked about it on the show his own crest with the onion and 
he is the onion knight or whatever and i i like this idea of houses coming and going based on their favor with the powers that be and the money they create and pr- perhaps the investment decisions and the land they own and all this that might be the most fascinating stuff to read about are all the different houses and how they all kind of combine in are you into the to, to the lore like that as well definitely yeah and who was in power when and the long-standing nature of some houses versus ones that have come and gone that's really interesting again that world building and that sort of texture and origin all the origin stuff that plays into Game of Thrones and how rich that is, is really, really kind of neat. It does make me want to learn even more. It's such a, it's such a rich world, you know, even more. I know George R. R. Martin really admired Tolkien and crafts his stuff to be that good. But I think in a lot of ways, I got to say, man, and this may be sacrilegious, but I think he surpassed Tolkien in a lot of ways with this stuff. I think so too. It's, it, and it's more, it's more rich. You know, there's more to it and it's different. It's not, you know, dwarves and elves and, that, and hobbits and that sort of thing. So it's different. So there isn't, you don't have to compare them. It's, it's a little bit of apples and oranges, although they're both high fantasy, I guess. Um, which makes it cool because th- those differences make them unique in their own right. But yeah, I think I, I, it's, it's, so, it's so good. And the fact that they could, I just imagine how good the books are. I know we talk about the books, talk about the books, but I just imagine how good they are because it's hard to capture how good a, the printed word is in film or television. You know, it's just really tough. So I imagine they're better. So that's what makes it so alluring. It's like, yeah, I want to get there to turn these pages and see, read more about Oberon and Jamie and all these characters that we love, Brienne. You know, so I will. I definitely will. I think I'm going to wait until we're done. We got three more to do. No, we got four more to do after this. So I think I'm going to wait because I don't want to. It's one thing to talk about the show and not be encumbered in a way by the books. You know, just talk about the show as the show. Right. And then later on, enjoy that <laughs> off camera, you know, type of thing. Indeed. I, I'm the same. I feel the same. I, I feel like I want to kind of just maybe get through it all and then begin anew, especially because things start to split off pretty heavily. And also, I think that there are things that are happening in the show even now as of the season we're watching where things aren't the same in the books. So I'll be interested to kind of track that as well. Finally, before we go, unless there's anything else you wanted to talk about, I just feel like we should touch on Bran just to acknowledge that he exists, but I just cannot bring sure. myself to give a shit about that arc at all. I just can't. I, I just I know that it becomes important and whatever, but I can't help but wonder, like, if that, if none of that was happening, what would the show be like right now? And the reality is, is that it would be exactly the same, except we would have gotten to see much more <laughs> of what we wanted to see or what we want to see. Are, are you the same? I just I don't care. I just. I don't care about. Brand. Yeah, there's. I feel bad saying it, but I do feel like you do. And I, I've listened to guys and girls talk on YouTube and different podcasts about how much they love this arc, not just in this season, but over the course of the entire show. And if there's just something about it that is a little dull for me. You know, you have Bran, you have Hodor, you have Jojen and Mira. Of course, we lose Jojen this season, so R.I.P. But. And, you know, I love the young sort of wizard characters. I think that's a really compelling angle. We talk about Parham and Param. We talk mm. about Raceland and Dragon's Lands. I love a wizard that's not old. I think that's really neat. But Bran and, and Jojen basically had the same power. So we still have Bran. So that's okay. But, I, you know, I think the most compelling thing is the warg thing with Bran, that he could go into the, into the wolf and he could go even into Hodor and control Hodor. 
And I love, I think probably the most compelling bit in season four for me was Jojen warning Bran, like you're doing this too much. You're, you're warging too much. You're going to get stuck in there and you're going to lose your humanity, which is interesting. Cause uh, again, talking about the world building and how the, all this stuff works, knowing that you shouldn't do it for too long. You know, wisdom says use the wolf, but then, you know, don't, if you're hungry, don't go eat as the wolf because you can't sustain yourself that way, even though it feels good. So I liked learning a little bit more about how that magic, quote unquote, magic works. And then, of course, they get to the three-eyed raven. We we get the, the children or whatever they call themselves, um, which are like those foundling, original, ancient race that, you know, she was throwing like electric balls. They look like little sprites, but they were kind of normal sized. Right. The closest you would get to an elf, I guess, in Game, Game of Thrones. So it was interesting. But yeah, for the most part, pound for pound, I agree with you, Kyle. There's something about this specific arc. It's like when it cuts away to Arya and the Hound or Daenerys or Jon Snow up at the wall, whatever's going on at King's Landing. It's great. And as soon as it cuts to Bran and his traveling companions like oh god and you know there was that one heartbreaking moment too where bran is like kind of huddled up against the tree john snow and his guys are liberating crasters and he's right there he's looking at him it's like oh they're gonna reunite and they don't they have to leave so that was another bittersweet moment where the brothers were so close but they don't do they kind of tease it they tease it out like oh they're gonna reunite right here and then they, at least john and bran will be together but it doesn't happen Although they see uh, Bran sees John, so that was that was kind of a neat neat way that they handled that. But yeah, I it's it's funny. I don't know why I feel bad for thinking that because I want to enjoy it all, you know. And it's not terrible. I think it just pales in comparison to all this other wonderful stuff that's happening and all these wonderful characters. Bran is not. I don't want to criticize the acting. I think it's just the character for some reason. It's not, and it, it gets worse with Bran. <laughs> I do remember that. Right. It actually gets a little worse. Too, yeah. It's just, it's just end, not interesting. So. He He's not attached to anyone that's truly interesting. Like we like Hodor, yeah. but we don't, I mean, Hodor is no, not yeah. Hodor is interesting. You know? I like the, yeah, he's not a cat. I like this. No, he's just kind of like this. You love Hodor, but he's just kind of a big idiot, you know, type of thing. And that's his, his charge is to physically defend them. And, you know, Osha and, recon or somewhere else so it's just it's just the four of them now the three of them so yeah not 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 the best maybe it'll get better in season five i don't remember but i don't think so well we'll get there shortly um is there anything else today before we wrap it up no i think we did it uh i hope yeah we I did the best we, we can it's very hot. it's hard I mean, it's hard i mean I I, I, it's hard to talk about it. it's hard to talk about this stuff this it show. is it's hard to cover all your bases this is the type we always talk about this right podcast stops we press say goodbye till next week, press stop. It's like, oh shit. You know, you have those oh shit right, moments right, right, where it's right. like, I should have mentioned this. But it really is hard to cover all your bases. But I think with Game of Thrones, you're doing okay if you just really cover the characters because it really is all about the characters. And from the characters spring the settings and the events and all that kind of stuff. But the characters, that's where it's really at with, with game. So, and I'm having fun, dude. I, I watched this season probably a couple of times. So probably four times in all now. So that really, there's a lot of things to watch right now. And I just keep watching Game of Thrones. So that, uh, that speaks to the power 
of Game of Thrones. Right on. I agree. And we'll uh, return back to it. And you said something controversial about this being better than Tolkien. And I, I agree. I mean, mm. I don't know if it's that controversial. At least his stuff is done. I guess you can say that. And that's nice. But yeah, I don't know. And you it, can't really compare until you read it on the written page. Right. Because Tolkien has I, I love The Hobbit. The Hobbit is like one of my comfort books. It's written with such a warmth. The trilogy as well, but in particular, The Hobbit. Now, I don't know. I don't know from Adam what George R. R. Martin's writing style is. So I can't really compare until I compare that, you know, until I compare the the pages and the books. But yeah, just pound for pound with the story and the characters and everything. Yeah, I, I go for Game of Thrones over Lord of the Rings right now. I'll be honest. Well, we'll uh, I, I agree. I'm, I'm excited. We'll, we'll return to Game of Thrones in the coming weeks, of course. And you can listen to Knockback as always out of order as well. So it doesn't really matter when we post it. You'll listen to it when it goes live. Digging. Let's end every episode or let's end this. I've done that a few times in a row. I think let's end this episode like we do each week with a, a dad joke. <laughs> I love this one, dude. I was just re- laughing to myself reading it again. Kyle, did you hear Bruce Springsteen changed the lyrics to one of his classic songs? What's he going to change next? His hair, his clothes, his face. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write that one? And my daughter says I shouldn't do stand-up. I know. Did you steal that one, Although too? this is a dad joke I read off of Google. Of course, yeah. If you could do stand-up, you got to not steal other people's jokes. You got to... No, you got to do you'll, original you'll be, content. You'll be, That's... You'll be the Carlos... Uh, what's her name? Carlos Mencia. Mencia? Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be that guy. That guy was like browbeaten for... Still. Yeah, but it's funny, right? too. Like, Rogan ruined that guy. I mean, Rogan... Joe, before Joe Rogan even had... If people don't know the Carlos Mencia-Joe Rogan saga and you want to see some fucking early pre-YouTube cringe. Go look up it's that big. shit when, when Rogan literally goes on stage during a Carlos oh. Mencia. Uh, did you, do you remember that? Like literally like calls him out during the I have show. To watch this again. Yeah. And is like, you're stealing joke. Like you're totally stealing jokes and they go back and forth and argue. It's, it's hysterical. It's awesome. So, and Mencia is like, he's gone. I'm not saying he, he had some kind of hefty defense. Like he had, like, I'm not saying it's a justified defense, but he had like an actual defense of it where he would say like he made a case for himself which is really weird because you would just think it's pretty cut and dry like if you stole jokes you stole jokes i agree but he sort of motored through it somehow and i don't know if he's still considered disgraced but you should never play i mean plagiarism is like you talked we talked about that with the the whole ign thing right yep. was that a year or two ago yeah yeah um right i did the whole interview about that as well yeah it's um it's, it's funny because i feel like with with uh anything like comedy or it's just like how hard is it to have a unique thought <laughs> that was my argument with the guy that plagiarized at ign i'm like what you are doing is harder than writing a review like it's comical how easy you're it is. gonna get caught that's yeah. the thing you are stealing jokes stealing stuff off the written page art you're gonna get busted it's gonna happen eventually especially with the advent of the internet you're not protected anymore like if somebody flips through a library book like all the information's out there at our fingertips my friends do not plagiarize. No, have an original thought for God's sake. It's not that hard. All right. As I plagiarize every single dad joke I know. on every God, single episode. Shit, of that. <laughs> well, nonetheless, Steak, it was good to see you and good uh, to be with everyone out there. Thank you so much for your love, kindness, and support of all things Knockback, our retro and nostalgia podcast. You can support it on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media. Please continue to leave us nice reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. If you listen on free feeds, we appreciate that. You can, of course, follow us on YouTube. Some of you like to watch 
the video version of this, although most of you, vast majority of you still listen. But again, I've said it before. It's so funny to watch how people consume the shows. It is and, interesting. And mo we, this show is the per capita, the most audio centric of all of our shows. So that's always interesting to me. But if you like the video, come and join us and uh, stare at us. We're handsome. So that's it. Dagan, appreciate you. Appreciate all of you Have out there. Fun. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Casual Misfits Gaming, Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vaders, Tom Quinn, Stephen Interfield, Forkboy Gaming, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Fucking Mayo, Logan Byford, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Knock, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Jonas Young, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Catch, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Chris R, Jad Rita, Benjamin Muma, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Hallen Rui, Tyler Watkins, Michael Buffel, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Halsey, Nuke Dukem, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H Trons, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale of Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Flowers, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, Dalla Rodriguez, Damon W., Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrew. Check Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, The Rose Experience, and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Joey Gonhalliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Brent Linquist, David I. Colucci, Paul Joyce, Passive Pixels, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Garson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, and Jonathan Rice.